No, that's good. Keep listening to this podcast. Whatever you do out there, whoever you are in Mariner's land, keep listening to this podcast. You don't have to be loyal to a single podcast. Just keep this podcast in your rotation. You know, you can find me on Twitter at Prospect Insider. Baseball Things is the podcast, but keep listening to this podcast. Keep it in your rotation. Welcome to another episode of Mariner's Mojo, the heartbeat of baseball podcast brought to you by two lifelong baseball fans, except this time it's just Chris. Uh, we had a special guest on this time, and it's a little bit different. Normally, when we have people on, it's prospects or someone coming on to talk about prospects or talk about the Mariners. But with everything going on in baseball right now, we wanted to have Maury Brown from Forbes come on. Uh, he knows a lot about the labor stoppage, whatever you want to call it, lockout, strike, shutdown. I think you kind of go with shutdown, labor stoppage. But he came on to talk to us about what's going on, um, just some different things that the owners want, that the players want, kind of an idea of when things might get resolved just to help us better understand what's going on. I hope you guys enjoy this kind of, he brings a lot of knowledge to the table here. So we are joined by Maury Brown of Forbes, 2020 national sports writer of the year nominee, uh, BBWAA member, worked with some MLB stuff, formerly of Fangraphs, Baseball America and Baseball Perspectives. So here it is, our recording with Maury Brown from Forbes. All right, Maury. So really before we start talking, I kind of want to know like, What's the right thing to call this? Is it lockout? Is it a strike? Labor stoppage? Well, um, so technically it's a lockout. Um, uh, lockouts are a mechanism that um, management uses. Um, the players wouldn't use it because the players aren't playing. Um, they're not getting paid right now. Um, so they would only call a strike um, if it was during the season. Like if you go to the 94-95 strike, um, the players preemptively did so. And Rob Manfred's logic behind this was um, we want to pull the lever on it. He said it was to, of course, accelerate talks, which it hasn't done. But the fear, of course, was is that if this hung out, they didn't have an agreement. And then it started getting closer than the players could potentially call strike. So they wanted to be able to control that. Um, in the overall, it is a work stoppage, um, whether it's a strike or whether it's a lockout. Um, and the reason for that is pretty obvious. There's nothing going on right now. All trades are frozen. All free agent signings are frozen. Um, team facilities for players to rehab are not available to the players. Um, the only thing that's going on right now are minor league signings can be done. And the minor leagues are basically operating outside of the MLB relationship um, due to the union, obviously. So um, that's really how it breaks down. Um, again, you know, Manfred called it pretty much a couple minutes after midnight on December 2nd, and we've been in the lockout ever since. So could they have kept going past December 2nd and just waited for Manfred to officially rule it as the labor stoppage? Well, no, he officially ruled it. Um, it but they, if the question is, could they have continued on without a labor agreement? Yeah, they could have. Um, it's happened before. Um, what will happen in that instance is it's largely done when there's a belief that you're close. You just didn't hit the deadline and we're going to move a little bit past it and, and have some stuff to happen. Um, we largely had this in 2002. No one, I, can, I can't get anybody to go on record on when it actually, the agreement went down. But when I interviewed C-League um, a couple of years ago about it, I said, I, you know, the word was that it happened at the 11th hour. 
And he said it was more like the 13th hour was the way that he put it, which leads me to believe that, you know, the clock struck midnight, the labor deal was expired. They were, they didn't announce that there was anything that had happened and then worked through to try and get something hammered out in the hours afterwards. Um, they normally don't go very long after that. I mean, you're not going to want to have anything hanging out there for too terribly long. Um, but if there's a feeling that they're near it, then then it could happen. And I had actually wrote about this last year that that was a distinct possibility. Of course, the sides were nowhere close. Um, largely, you know, the pandemic threw a wrench into things. And then I think the acrimony that had built up due to the 2020 shortened season and the mini labor agreement with the sides talking past each other, I think that that relationship just spilled over into where we are now. I and mean, it's just a not a very good situation. Uh, Jeff Passan, who wrote about this, um, largely, I think, said it exactly, and others have said it, they're talking past each other. Um, they're, you know, nobody's really listening to each other. They're just talking topics back and forth right now. And, uh, and we're not close yet. So it's like when you're sitting there watching two t- people talk and they just want to say their point and they don't care what the other person has to say. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of listening going on right now. I mean, you know, the sides are so entrenched. I mean, if you talk to one side or the other, and I've, you know, I've done so over the months, um, they'll, you know, complain about how, you know, we made an offer and they're not countering or something to this effect, or what they're offering is just not even worth addressing. So we don't have to counter offer something if it's, we believe it to be totally unreasonable. And that's where you get past, you know, one side says, Hey, let's do this. And they're like, well, no, how about if we do something totally radically different than what you really want? And this is a prime example or some of the early um, proposals that came from management, like, let's just do away with sour arbitration and we'll do the wacky system with FOR and we'll do ahead and use it by, you know, if a player's a certain age and we'll do it like that. And there was no way that the players would ever agree to something like that. Sour arbitration and free agency are the two cornerstones of what the union has been able to get um, since 1963, when, when, when the MLBPA was largely created. So there was no way they were going to do that. So then the players come back and go, well, let's get rid of all service level two guys and get everybody into salary arbitration early. And then they'll enter into free agency at five years instead of six years and management went, there's no way we're going to do that. So there are ways to make this happen right now. They're just at very, um, very radically polar opposites right now. And someone's going to have to sit there and say, let's move more toward the middle on this. And I'm about ready to write about this issue. Um, it could be done. The players could do it. If the players are very adamant about all service level two guys going in and Rob Manfred is saying, there's no way that this is going to happen. It will kill quote unquote kill, you know, and it'll, it'll just destroy the smaller revenue clubs, which is not true. Um, then they're never going to get anywhere. If if the players go, well, we're at about 20% of service level two guys, they're called super twos, that enter into salary arbitration based upon their service time in, in two years, right? So it, it works like this, Chris. I, um, if, for those that don't know how a super two works, um, if your service time started before mine in a given year, and there's a certain number of days, right? So let's say you're at uh, two years and 
a hundred days or something like that. And I'm at two years and 50 days. Well, you might be at that threshold where you would be available to go into salary arbitration um, based upon a percentage of the uh, days in a month um, and where you're at. Well, they could increase that percentage. It could go from whatever it is now. I want to say it's 20 or 22 percent. And maybe the players go, you know what, let's do 40 or 50. And then the owners could come back and counter with something, you know, back and forth until they the players got more players in, but they didn't get all of them in. And that's one way to break the ice, but seems really interested in that. And did you mentioned earlier like the the COVID talks, did that actually make things worse heading into this? Um and it's a really good question. Um I would say that there was something about it um that really predates that that set this up. Um so for those that don't know, I mean, the owners have largely gotten a leg up in specifically not just the last deal, but the last couple of agreements have really skewed more toward owners and the last one very much so. And um, the Players Association was aware of this. Tony Clark was aware of this. And they hired a guy named Bruce Meyer from the NHLPA who had worked under Donald Fear, who's the former executive director of the MLBPA when we had the strike is a no-nonsense kind of guy. Um, he's a no-BS kind of individual. Dan Halem, who's basically his counterpart underneath Rob Manfred on management side, is the same way. And so they, when they entered into trying to agreement for 2020, the two really sat down for the first time. And since the owners had largely had a leg up, they weren't really used to some guy going, no. I mean, that's pretty much it. It was, he was more along the lines of, well, let's not, we let's, you know, listen or maybe talk about it or maybe it was in a lot of instances, I think, no. And this was of course a um, indicator that the players themselves had really become a lot more galvanized and said, we cannot afford to have another labor deal go south. And they were going to send a clear message that even with this mini deal, that we they were not going to be um, what, quote unquote, shoved around. They wanted a full season. They didn't get a full season. They have filed a $500 million grievance saying that they should have been able to play a full season. The league countered with a counter grievance of 500 million right to basically offset it saying you know that's ridiculous we're in the middle of you know at that point we were like deep in the throes of uh covid and so uh, yeah i mean those issues dan and bruce could not hammer it out so rob manfred flew to phoenix met with rob manfred they supposedly had it all figured out and then rob cut all been out of shape saying Tony got it all wrong. We thought we had a deal. We didn't have a deal. So yeah, I mean, when you add all those things up and then you were like trying to do this stuff via Zoom and, you know, we're still trying to negotiate in the pandemic and trying to get through the season. And, you know, it just, by the time they got to where they are now, you know, or by the time they really rolled up into serious negotiations, that had largely set back in. And something's got to give, and I don't know what it is. I mean, before it was, you know, Rob and Tony said, all right, 
you two guys are just freaking pissed off at each other. Let's see what we can do. And that did get some movement, although the, I don't know why they didn't have lawyers sitting there going, this is what we agreed to, guys. Why are you, you know, saying something otherwise? But it, it might come down to that. It, 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 and it wouldn't be the first time that things have been gridlocked and others have stepped in. But they're largely trying to see how things go. Those are the cheap negotiators. Um, right now, it doesn't matter because they're not they're, There's no real pressure right now to do anything. Um, but that's coming up pretty quick. What's the biggest thing on each side that like, what do the owners want? What do the players want? What's going to be the, the main factors that hold this back from happening for a while? Well, let's start with the players because as we kind of talk about the players are the ones that are trying to what they call claw back, right? They're trying to get some things back that they lost. Um, I mentioned it. They, they really want to try and see something happen around younger players getting in. And this is um, largely a byproduct of baseball's non-cap system. Um, well, there's a cap, but I mean, it's a super soft one. Basically what happened was um, the owners suddenly shifted from where they were coming out of the 2000s and said, you know, we've been paying these, you know, expensive um long-term contracts as the contract sizes have grown to be able to have flexibility under the luxury tax ceilings we have to give longer durations and when we do stuff like that what happens is is you can get into albatross contracts Um, i personally believe that albert pujols contract actually in when you add in the marketing of it and how much he gave in terms of some milestone numbers and everything his contract's not as bad as it's been played out but he certainly hasn't performed like he did when he was with st louis so there was those kind of contracts right and what happened was is analytics got better scouting got better development got better and somebody wisely i think said if we put our risk on untried talent and we really scout these guys and we develop them properly and we're doing our projections well, it's better to place the risk up front with young untried talent than dealing with veterans that are older when we're going to get saddled with these contracts. Move. So you started to see a lot more younger players. The, the, the number of years that players have, had under contract by on average have dwindled dramatically. The average career length now, the average is three and a half seasons there. I mean, you're talking about players that most of them are, you know, barely getting into salary arbitration. So, you know, when that happened, of course, what's the happy byproduct of that, the happy accidents, or it's not an accident at all. Players are cheaper. They're under three years of club control. Then they're under another three years of control under salary arbitration. So the players saw this. They didn't like the fact that, A, money was rolling in at a dramatic rate, yet the total amount of money being spent on player payroll was going down. And at the same time, we have these clubs that are hanging around the bottom, not even trying. So the one thing is younger players. The second thing was, the reason the younger players became more valuable is they started to see more value in it. The draft system itself and how draft selections are created or determined, that largely became a sticking point because what's happened is this, this quote-unquote tanking. 
because the team with the worst record gets the first pick, it became very easy to procure young talent. If your scouting was good and you, you know, did your job right, you could load yourself up on really cheap talent, really good cheap talent through the draft. And that disincentivizes clubs to want to compete. I mean, if you're Pittsburgh, if you're a fan of the Pirates, you should be angry. Now, all that said, there are some teams where the tanking thing, um, it, it, it should never have. I should never have to see the Chicago Cubs do it, given the amount of resources that they have. The Seattle Mariners are the lone exception. And I'm not just saying that because I'm in the Pacific Northwest and I watch them a lot. There was a problem in which the system had been gutted that, you know, prior to Jerry coming on as the GM, and even during Jerry's early tenure, he was hamstrung by how the farm system was loaded. And you couldn't really plug it through free agency. So, okay, that seemed to, you know, nothing else seemed to work. Let's try this. And... I don't think fans understand that the Mariners have a lot more resources than I think a lot of people realize. But the core, the core issue of this was they bounced back quickly. That's what you should want to see, right? I mean, last season was a good indicator that they were ahead of their development cycle. They were doing better than anticipated. And, of course, now the, um, the expectations are, you know, although granted the Rangers have gotten much better, the Angels should be better. You know, there's still the Astros, but the the logic is, is that they should be able to make the playoffs this year. So their go time moved up. So that works for them. But when you have uh, teams like the Pirates that are just languishing around the bottom or the, even the A's, which seem to have runs in the regular season, but don't really put in the muster to try and get their rotation or their relievers set up for the postseason. Um, that that shouldn't be a reoccurring thing. Rob Manfred has said to me directly, and others at the league will say this, that a cycle should be about five years or even the the lowest revenue team. They should cycle down and come back up within five years and be competitive in five-year windows. Um, some teams that have more resources, the Dodgers are certainly the best example of this, can go much longer but the pirates have no excuse to hang around the bottom like they do. So those are the kind of the two things on the player side. The owners want expanded playoffs. They don't want to give up what they, you know, largely have. Although, like I said, management wanted to completely reshuffle the deck on how salary arbitration was. And that was kicked to the curb. So we're going to get something similar to what we have now. But I think that there will be some changes. Like I said, they really want expanded playoff teams. That's a bunch of ESPN money. Um, so there'll be that. Um, outside of that, um, that, that, that just seems to be like the core thing for them. That, and I think they're playing a lot of defense now. So are they looking to go back to what happened in 2020 with like, what was it, eight teams from each side or whatever? Yeah, it'll be something less than that. I think they're looking at 14. The players, so the owners said, let's do 14. Um, the players, I think, countered with 12. Um, I think think that they'll get to 14 that as a matter of fact that would be if if you wanted to bargain right you would go all right fine you're going to give us you know the players say we're going to do a draft system similar to the nba where you don't guarantee yourself the first pick but your odds increase 
Um, and we're going to increase the number or the percentage of players that have service level two entering salary arbitration, which gets them earlier into free agency. Maybe it's not all service level two guys again. Maybe it's a higher percentage. Maybe it's 50% instead of 20. Maybe it's 60%. I don't know what. And they go, in exchange, we'll give you that. For some strange reason, the owners have thought that the universal DH is something strictly that the players want, and that's not true. It's not true. The universal DH is as the value of pitchers has increased. And in conjunction with Rob Manfred's want of better pace of play, it's it's something both sides want. They both want it, but it gets played in negotiations as a purely player thing. Um, but it that's why the, the players association just goes, I don't know why they're saying that. They, you know, they're protecting your most expensive assets that are the most fragile. You're keeping them off the base paths, you know, and you're increasing pace of play and making better baseball. So, no, we're not going to accept that as a chip that you're going to give us. That that seems like something that the two sides should agree to. That I liked what you mentioned about the draft and kind of assigning values like the NBA does with the, the ping pong balls and the lottery and whatnot, because it seems like that would just drum up more interest for the draft and make it a bigger event. Yeah, I would. You know, and I don't know. And another thing about this, I don't know whether this is even on the table. But more than one person has said, why don't they? Why why can't we trade draft picks like they do in the NFL and the NBA? Um, so, um, is that something that's being discussed? I don't know. The sides are pretty quiet. Um, there's a laundry list of things that have. That's that's one of the things that I think probably is worth noting. The core economic stuff is the stuff that's holding things up. There are a lot of things that have been discussed. Whether the universal DH is in there or whether they've come to an agreement on how the draft system will be. Um, I don't know, but that, you know, is something that would be a concession largely on owner's side. Right. And you're going to have a, a, um, you're going to have a political faction within the owners that are not going to be happy with it. Like if you're the Orioles or if you're the pirates or even the rays, you know, you, you don't want that. You want to be able to say, well, we suck again. And But there's a group of owners, the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Red Sox, and, you know, to a lesser extent, even the Mariners, that are, are clubs that actually make quite a bit of money, that don't like to see what I'd say straight up is clubs living off of welfare. So there's an internal battle that is raging on the ownership side between lower and high revenue clubs and on the players side of course there's the veterans and the rank and file guys the rank and file guys are thinking get a little more respect this time around than we have in the past i think the players understand for for the first time in maybe since 94 95 about the value of sticking up for the collect union membership and not just having it all weighted toward you know these big deals and i i Everybody talks about, you know, Matt Scherzer getting, you know, the highest AAV for a pitcher. Deals that went down right before the lockout. But people don't seem to realize, I think, that that's a very small percentage of the whole. There's still a lot of players out there that are unemployed. And, you know, because we're in a lockout. So there'll be a two-week dash around that. So 
I think this is the first time in a long, long time where the body itself just said, you know, collectively, we all need to stick together, you know, young guys, you know, middle of the road guys that don't have much tenure and the veterans all need to stand shoulder to shoulder on this stuff. Cause they haven't been talking very much, right? Like normally people would be reporting to spring training in like a month. And it seems like they're a lot further away than that at coming to any type of resolution. Yeah. I mean, um, I think the general consensus and, and there's no hard date, right? I mean, if you think about it logically, you go, all right, by the end of January, if you wanted to start spring training on time, you need about two weeks. All right. So pitchers and catchers report about, you know, the middle of February. Um, that would give about a two week sprint to deal with, you know, anybody hanging around a salary arbitration, uh, trades and free agency signings for guys that want to. There's guys like Chris Bryan out there. You know, there's, there's, you know, there are targets. I mean, I'm speaking to you because you're a Mariners guy. Chris Bryan is clearly a target. It's a target for other clubs, but, there's guys like that still hanging out there. And so there would be a two week sprint. So what we would see, I think is kind of the other side of the, um, you know, book ending of, of how it was leading up to the deadline. Right. It was like this flurry of signings and, and nothing. And now, and then it'll unlock and it will be a flurry of activity going into spring training. But again, if the players, and I'm largely, again, I think the players are very interested this time and a lot more. Um, they really want to claw back on some stuff. If they're very adamant about stuff, they don't get paid for spring training. So there are no pressure to go into spring training on time. The owners, on the other hand, have gone, uh, you know, an entire season without, you know, you, you had no fans, except for, of course, the postseason in 2020. and a, you know, the beginning of 2021 didn't have, you know, you had attendance restrictions. So you're going to want to lose more revenue by losing games with spring training. There will be pressure from these clubs not to continue to lose more money. And that also plays into television. I don't think a lot of people know that um, all of the games that were lost in 2020 uh and I'm sorry, yeah, and for the short season, for 2020, you know, about 102 games, right? Um, those were all paid for by the networks, thinking they were getting games. Now, those have to be rebated back, that money does, and spread out over a long period of time. But that's money still having to be paid back to the networks. So, I mean, spring training games, not all of them, but a lot of them now have increased um, – and television inventory for the regional sports networks. So it's not just attendance that would be lost for the owners. It would also be the regional sports network money that they would have to, again, start to pay back. And I think there would be pressure from their network partners. There will certainly be pressure from those owners on Rob Manfred and, and Dan Hanlon to come to an agreement to try and get as many games in as they can. And the players know this. They don't get paid for spring training. When the regular season rolls up, then both sides are under a lot of pressure. And I just don't see more than a week of spring training being lost. And I, even then, I, I just, I'd be really shocked if that happened. I, you know, it's a possibility, but it, it just, I think it would be a shock. 
So you think there's a pretty good chance that like mid March, this is all locked up and fixed and we got baseball again. Yeah, I think so. Look, I don't know. I mean, um, I've been, I've been more optimistic about this because I keep thinking about, I, I, I try to be practical, right? I'm like, well, they're going to lose money and blah, blah, blah. And I fail to think about just how um, strength and, and how tight um, the sides have been historically. Like if you go back over the history of baseball, right? It's hard to look at history in the middle of it while it's going on. But if you go back and look at the history of baseball, We've seen owners, largely on the owner side, the players have more recently, you know, have slipped a little bit. It's largely on the owner side, have made some incredible mistakes, strictly because of their arrogance. They don't like not getting their way. And so would they be willing to, you know, suffer more uh, to make a point? to say, you know, we got a leg up on the players and we want to, you know, break the union or whatever the heck it is. I mean, they've been trying to break the union since its creation. So, I mean, it doesn't sound like it, you know, over the last 26 years, like everything seems like it's been pretty good. But I mean, make no mistake, if the owners could break the union, they would do it. And the union is not going to be broken. So now you have these two entrenched sides so again, it gets back to like, are we going to get into something like we did with 2020? Maybe, but I would hope, I would hope to Pete, because the one thing about all this that I think is lost on both sides, it's a little bit different than 94, 95, 94, 95, you know, cable was just coming around. You might've had, you know, 30 channels. There was certainly no gaming consoles. You didn't have Netflix. You didn't have any of that. And we're in the pandemic. People have figured out how to move on. And I think that people will go, ah, so baseball's not here. I guess I'll go watch hockey. Or I guess I'll go play my PS5 or whatever it is. And will not, I mean, people will get loud on social media about it and say, I'm never watching it again. But it won't be like the fans are like, they're apathetic about it. And I think that that'll have a bit of an effect and they'll get some of it back. But baseball, I think is largely turning into a regional phenomenon and a core fan thing. I mean, it's not quite the NHL, but it's starting to feel like it, like there will always be the core fans. People like me, you know, I'm a junkie. I'm never going to walk away from it. Uh, You know, I get paid to write about it. I love it. Um, But uh, fringe fans, if you're trying to grow the younger audience, there's no better way to get them to forget about things real fast and to have a, a work stoppage that starts to affect um, games being played. Do you think like social media and NBA and NHL playoffs would like have an effect at helping the players because it's so easy for people to see what's going on and decide to go somewhere else now? Well, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, but that doesn't work really f- toward the players. I mean, they start to lose pay, right? And then there's real pressure because there's thousands of players and there's only 30 owners. Um, it's I it's always been portrayed as easier to hold the center for the owners than for players. I mean, look, if, if I go back to 2011 um, when the NFL had their lockout, um, it was the, we were kind of in the same mode. 
I would talk. I was I was a lot more in tune to the NFLPA at the time, and the NFL wouldn't talk to me for anything. But the NFLPA would talk to me quite a bit. They were bent, and they were really pissed off. Jeff Saturday, man, I got him on the horn one day, and at that time, of course, there was a fairly good relationship between baseball and uh, between the MLBPA and MLB and. And I asked him if they thought that they were respected the same way. And he like went, hell no. And like was really adamant. And they wound up losing exactly one game. They lost the Hall of Fame game, which was a preseason game. And people rarely talk about the NFL lockout. Now, are we going to be in that mode with MLB? You know, first of all, Rob Manfred's the first guy to break 26 years of labor peace. I don't think he wants to be the guy to say that he lost games after, you know, no fans in 2020, limited fans in 2021, and really didn't get them back until the summer. Are you really going to continue to throttle revenues that way? And they're just now coming into a new television deal with the national broadcast partners. They're about ready to announce. You're going to, your podcast gets to hear this before I write about it. There's word that there will be, midweek games but you know espn lost dropped the mid midweek games it'll be largely sunday night baseball and some other stuff that they're they can flex on midweek but the regular um wednesday games and stuff like that went away and so um it sounds like a streaming deal is going to happen um and so that has yet to be announced you're really going to go into the season with new a new streaming partner and your new, you know, national TV deal with Fox, TBS, you know, and ESPN with their new deals where they're paying more money and immediately not have games being played. And there's going to be a lot of pressure to make sure that that doesn't happen. So it sounds like there really is enough on the table for everybody that they're going to make it happen, right? Without losing very much, hopefully. Well, my, I, again, I'm, I'm an optimist, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Most of us, I think that watch this thing really believes that um, it'll get really, really tense at the end. I mean, you think, you know, so people like me, you know, passing others that kind of watch this stuff. Um, Kenny Rosenthal, of course, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit, you know, it's starting to percolate up because it's the beginning of the month Now you wait. You wait until we're in the last week and a half, two weeks of January, which isn't far away, right? A couple weeks. Yeah. There will be a clamor of stories saying we're on the verge of losing games. You know, what's happening with free agency? Fans, social media will all spin up. My belief is that that's when talks are really going to start to happen. There is no deadline right now. I mean, there's an arbitrary deadline to begin with. We just know that there's a season coming up and clubs are trying to sell tickets. <laughs> I mean, people like, I'm not planning my trip. First of all, there's a pandemic. I'm not going to plan my trip to, you know, Arizona or Florida. If you guys don't know whether you're going to have games, I'm not going to make my trip. So it is starting to affect things now a little bit, but it'll really, it'll, the pressure cooker will really start to kick in, you know, about the third week in the month. It, it'll really start to be there. And the last week will be crazy. And so I, my thought is that that the deadline, the real deadline will create 
um, the necessary pressure to make things happen. That's how it's almost always happened. You know, they'll fumble around. They'll get a lot of, you know, easy stuff off the plate, you know, early on. And then like right at the very end, there'll be this flurry of activity in the last couple of days and they'll come to an agreement around stuff. Again, the question will be, do you need two weeks to before spring training to do all your signings? Can you potentially do it the week after? Only have a week before. Can you shorten up spring training? There might be a discussion about spring training being shorter anyway, simply due to, you know, the doggone COVID virus doesn't like to play nice right now. I mean, you see what's happening in the NBA, the NFL, and the NHL. It's wreaking havoc right now. So, and you know, happy accident. Maybe it's not such a bad thing right now to maybe shorten up spring training. Wait until this wave is over and see, you know, maybe that'll be better for our players. We don't have a bunch of players sick and having to deal with that. And again, the players don't get paid for spring training. So them not wanting to get sick is there. Does it make for crappy baseball in at the end of March and early April? Yeah, but I can make an argument that it's crappy baseball then, except for seemed like the Dodgers and Padres had a hell of a good series early in April um, last year. But for the most part, you know, people are still feeling it out. The, the teams are still working it out. It doesn't really start kicking into gear until you get into May. Yeah, that's a good point because it does seem like kind of no matter how much you put into spring training, the guys, it's different once you get into real games. Yeah, I mean, the weather. There's some pitchers. Like Felix Hernandez, man, he was always horrible coming out of spring training. And it would, you know, he would slowly work into it, and then he would be, he would be King Felix. And there are other guys like that. There were guys that just were historically bad coming out of spring training every dog on time, and you know, and then they get spun up, you know. So, um, you know, we like to say that games don't really matter in April and you know May, and then of course we look at how every. I have a game 163, and we almost had that happen in the NLS last season. So the games do matter. And again, but I, I, again, I get to this thing. You know, the players are not going to, they're not going to accept the status. Absolutely not. I get that loud and clear in talking to representatives from the Players Association. And when I talk to, the management side of things, they're very clear that it's a free market system. Well, it's a free, now it's free market. Free market doesn't always mean the salaries go up, you know? So the core thing is fans are stuck in the middle. What do we really need? The stuff that you and I haven't even talked about, like the fact that games have turned into sludge, you know, just drudgery because, you know, now pitchers are throwing with everything they have in the first, second, third innings. I mean, they're throwing so hard with movement now that they're gassed by the fourth inning. And once you start to get into your bullpen, it just slows down the activity. Now, when you or I are at a Mariners game, it's great. We don't care. We're invested. We're at the game. We're watching it. We're not looking at the clock. When you're at home on television, it's a little bit different. We got 8,000 different options. And, you know, here we are going deep into the bullpen again and using, you know, four or five relievers. And it gets really crazy. And none of that stuff has been discussed by the sides. What are they going to do about the health of the game? 
And Rob Manfred has the ability with one year's notice to do stuff like put in a pitch clock and other things. And he just has to let them know. He wants to work with the players and do that. So maybe that stuff's been worked out. But if, if the health of the game is at stake here and the sides are just like, hey, we just got to make sure that we're set up to make sure that we have more money and we're not talking about the game itself, then I'm not sure that um, we'll, we'll have a 2022 season. Maybe it's a little bit shorter. But, you know, the possibility that it's not much better than last season, um, you know, it's not there. Is, you know, pure baseball fan like you or I, Hey man, I watch 200 games a year. I watch every single Mariners game and a bunch of other national games every day. So it's, I'm not the guy you have to worry about, or even you, if you're an invested fan, you're worried about others, right? Television numbers continue to drop. Attendance continues to drop. Um, are we going to get it to the point to where major league baseball is more like the NHL and it's just more of a fringe thing or MLS? I find that hard to believe given it used to be called the national pastime i'd hate to see that speeding up the game does seem like a decent way to do it because especially with these games that are starting at seven o'clock it shouldn't be 10 o'clock during the seventh inning no i mean it shouldn't but i don't know what you do look if i was to guess like if you could wave a magic wand manfred would go all right we're gonna go ahead and put in the pitch clock and i don't know if you've ever gone to a game with one i love it I think it's absolutely great because after a while it becomes completely invisible. It would really be invisible on television, but at, even at the game, like I first college game, I saw with it. I'd like, but the first two innings, I was like just fixated on the pitch clock. And then I forgot about it. And it was this pretty crisp moment, but it doesn't matter if, if, if you're a manager and you're given the tools and your tools are, you know, of, of relievers, Relievers are cheaper than starters. I can't go out and get Max Scherzer if I'm the Tampa Bay Rays. So I'll do the opener thing out of budgetary reasons. And they've been damn good at it, you know, but it, it, you know, if, if the thing is the radar gun and it's not just the radar gun anymore. I mean, I'm starting to see sliders in the mid nineties and, you know, I mean, when you're starting to see not just high velocity, but high velocity with movement, you're really going to gas your guys. And so it turns into bullpen management and you're, you know, again, I mean, I don't know how many times we've seen like, Oh crap, what are they going to do now? They're going into the 10th inning and there's nobody left. I mean, it, we're starting to see managers just absolutely blasting through their lineup cards, even the bench, the bullpen. And it just doesn't make for great baseball. I, if it's the bench, it's not that big of a deal, but out of the bullpen, Every time that happens, a four-minute commercial or however long it is, and that just absolutely takes it out. I mean, at least you had when a regular, you know, even when it was like, I'm not going to say old guy. I'm going to say like six innings. Six innings is a pretty good chunk of your game, right? I mean, I can handle three innings with relievers, but um, it, it does not bode well for, you know, when games are three hour, three hours on average. And many of them approaching four, and you just have to do something about it. Yeah, and it would be nice to see a bit a bit shorter, but I think we're kind of getting into that range ourselves here. It kept you fairly long. So. <laughs> well, I I, yeah, I, I, you know, I feel like I had to make up some of it for you know. I sorry about yesterday, but, <laughs> right. uh, but uh, yeah, I uh, I appreciate it.
yeah, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. And I don't think, I think it was far from boring and learned a lot talking to you. Excellent. Well, Hey man, thanks for having me.